You're listening to the podcast of Dr. Chip Bennett. Please consider following us and giving us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Well, welcome back here to our study of uh, Revelation here with uh, Dr. Warren Gage. I'm Chip Bennett. You know, we've we've talked about the literary center of the book, the, the, the geographical center of the book. We've also discussed the genre of literature, which helps us to sort of frame that. But but we still, to get into the book, we need the sort of the overarching narrative of what is going on. Um, as you know, I have quite a few kids at home, and most of them are now way past the age of playing with small toys. But it was always fun to watch them have the round pegs and trying to put them in a square, mm-hmm. you know, or the square trying to go. It just wouldn't fit. And and I, and I feel like with Revelation, for many, many, many years, I, I kept trying to cram the book into something and it wouldn't fit. And, and, it, and it was aggravating to me because because it, it was like I had bits and pieces, but it just didn't fit. It's almost like having, if somebody had taken three puzzles and taken bits out of each of the puzzles and thrown it together, and you're like, how does this not work? And, and then you realized, oh, this is a part of three puzzles. I need to get the pieces here and the pieces here and the pieces here to work. Understanding sort of, hey, there's there's something going on here with the way John is writing, which we talked about with the center of the book. We talked about genres. It gives us an idea of sort of where this thing is going. But I feel like the big missing piece is that sort of overarching dramatic narrative that is going on. And, and I think that um, understanding that really opens up the book in a way. The best way for me to explain it is going back to that puzzle analogy. If you have a puzzle, you dump all the pieces out. You typically turn all the pieces over so you can see them. But then you put the top of the box right here, Mm -hmm. because you know that is what you're trying to build with Mm -hmm. the pieces. I think the pieces fit when you can see the top of the box, and I think what we're trying to maybe talk about here is the top of the box. Let's get into it. What is the story that covers it from the beginning that you've got? We want something that goes from the very beginning, the very end, and explains the sequence. Sure, and I feel like a lot of scholars are taking pieces of Daniel, or taking pieces of Isaiah, are taking pieces of what, and they're trying to push it and, and try it, but it, but it never works completely. Now, I mean, I've read commentaries where like, oh, the background is the book of Daniel. Okay, well, there's definitely Danielic things mm-hmm. in the book of Revelation, but it's definitely not the key to interpreting the book because it breaks down at some levels. And even the commentators will, will say, I think what we want to do here um, in trying to understand this book is to get that background. Let's look at the dramatic narrative of what's going on in Revelation. There is a lot going on there, but there is one book that's overlooked by most commentary. Like you said, most commentary that is looking to the Old Testament to give us the prophetic narrative is focusing on Daniel or Isaiah or Ezekiel or one of the one of the prophets. There is another book that the fathers of the church mm-hmm. often cited mm-hmm. and interpreted Revelation through mm-hmm. that is also a prophetic book, but it's not so known in the modern Christian community. The first book of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, first book of Nebaim, is what we would call a historical book. It's the book of Joshua. Mm-hmm. Revelation opens, the revelation of Joshua Christ, of Yeshua Christ. But to the Hebrew ear, that's Joshua. So the, the name Jesus being Joshua, that really does set up this background narrative. I think just talking about that story really helps to set up. I think people can see, especially if they've read the Old Testament some. I think uh, it I think it does, and we will see that this story from the book of Joshua 
which is the first book of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, mm-hmm. which is often overlooked. Church fathers thought of that mm-hmm. book so prominently when they thought of and that's, and that's important. I mean, the church fathers were, were as close to the disciples as, as possibly could be. As an aside, I, I think, especially like, and I'm sure you felt the same way too, a lot of times when you go to, that, when you go to seminary or higher education, you're told just stay away from those guys, stay away from them. But th- they read the biblical stories much like Jesus in Luke 24, who says the whole Old Testament's about me. They had a way of reading where they saw in the Old Testament Jesus and into the New. And I think Paul does the same thing. I mean, he makes claims like in First Corinthians ten that the rock that was following them, and you know, as they left uh, Egypt. Oh, by the way, that was Jesus. I mean, mm-hmm. no, nobody would think that at all, you know. Um, but this is important because Joshua sits at the first of the Hebrew prophets. The name is super significant in relation to Jesus, as we've talked about, and the story of Joshua taking Jericho. I don't know how you could read that story and then read Revelation and not go, oh wow, there's a lot here. There is a lot. When I was working on my my dissertation and I was reading the Septuagint account Mm. of the Battle of Jericho, I realized John has just (laughs) taken whole passages and imported them into Revelation. It's just stunning. And like I said, it's Jesus that it's Jesus, yeah. the Greek name, that is fighting that battle of Jericho. So that, and the, the Septuagint is the Bible of the apostles. There is no question about that. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, what is it that we're learning about Jesus, whose name is Joshua in, in Hebrew? And both Mary and Joseph, his parents, were told, one in a vision and one by the angel Gabriel, you will call his name Jesus. Why would the Savior, the Messiah, be called Jesus? You would think if Jesus had a name of, of an Old Testament character. It would be something like Abraham or David. Or even Adam, because he's a Adam. new Adam. He's a new Adam. Yeah. But no, he's named after Joshua. And Joshua is, was not so highly regarded. Philo made the comment. The, the Jews preferred Moses, and Joshua sent, they seemed to them to diminish Moses' work, mm. because Moses' work is left unfinished. And that's a very key word. He brings the people out of Egypt, but he is not able to bring them into their inheritance. Right. And so his work is always and eternally unfinished, whereas Joshua will bring them into the land and give them rest. Mm-hmm. And so when Jesus is the new Moses who brings them out of bondage to sin and death, but he also leads us into the land of promise. And so the greater name then, the one who finishes his work is greater, that's Joshua. Mm-hmm. And, but the Jews preferred Moses for obvious mm-hmm. reasons, or evident reasons, I would say. But Joshua completed the work, and so in that sense had a greater ministry. Mm-hmm. Moses represented the law. I think there's something instructive. Remember, he can't go into the land because of his sin by the waters of strife. Mm-hmm. So Moses can lead you to see the land of promise, mm-hmm. but he cannot bring you into it. Yeah. And I think there's something in that that shows the typology of the law. The law can show you your need of salvation right. and that your hope is on the other side of the Jordan, but the law can't bring you in. It takes a Joshua to bring you into mm-hmm. your inheritance. So for those reasons, I think we can see the prominence of the name Jesus. But you can even see the fulfillment of that because Moses, who could not get into the promised land because of the law, in Christ, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses stands in the promised land, which shows mm-hmm. 
that Christ is the fulfillment. And you know, you got Moses and Elijah there too. That's the law and the prophets. The two He's prophets the of Sinai. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, it's not just a typological sort of overture. I think it's sort of a settled deal that, you know, Moses could get you so far, but it takes Christ to get you to bring in. You into but, the land. but Joshua being that name, I think there's more there than just maybe making a type. I, th- I think there's like a fulfillment there. I think too that um, if we if we consider the ministry of the Lord, he's very self-consciously following the pattern of Joshua mm-hmm. because Joshua assumes command of the people on the other side of the Jordan. Mm-hmm. Then he brings them through the baptismal yeah. waters of the, of the Jordan itself yep. where God divides them like he did at the That's baptism right. at the Red Sea. And then he comes across and into the land and Jesus begins his ministry, his public ministry, when John the prophet acknowledges him at Beth Abara mm-hmm. is what it should be at the place of the crossing yeah. where Joshua began his ministry. And if you go to Israel, th- they know that. because you, th- there's the traditional place where they baptize everybody, but there's another place where they go, no, this is where, and that's when Jesus says it's to fulfill all righteousness, mm-hmm. there's a sense in which the ark has gone through those waters. There's, there's and a the lot the ark there. was typical of him. That's right. So he's going to be baptized. That's right. It was not for him a baptism of repentance. That's right. It was to fulfill all righteousness. But Jesus begins his ministry where Joshua assumed his ministry. He goes into the land. He has a Judean campaign and a Galilean campaign, just like he's following the battle plan of Joshua. He's going in not with a sword of bronze, but with the sword of the Spirit. This is not a deathly slaughtering everybody. It's calling the nations to grace and to repentance. So it's a greater ministry than than Joshua. Let's let's think about, I I think it would be helpful if we just rehearsed the story of Joshua Jericho and and anticipating how does this correspond to the narrative of Revelation. And we've said, remember, it has to comprehend the whole book, not just isolated pictures, but it has to be the whole book in sequence in order for us to feel that we have a pattern that will help us to interpret the book. So the Battle of uh, Jericho, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wicked city, it's a war scroll, mm-hmm. and that's important because it's a time of holy war. You have the seven trumpets in a time of holy war. What happens is when they cross the land, first thing Joshua does is build a memorial of the crossing with 12 mm-hmm. riverbed stones, and that becomes the mound of stones that's at right. Gilgal where God rolls away the yeah. reproach of the people. And he does that because Joshua is told he has to, he has to re-implement circumcision right. because Moses had neglected circumcision in the wilderness. So they circumcise that generation or they're not competent to sit at table for Passover. Mm-hmm. So they reinstitute the celebration of Passover. And then once they've done that, the males are competent for holy war mm. they're, because they're clean and they're in fellowship again. So the first thing he does is he brings cleanliness and purity to the people of God. Then he's contemplating the battle. Now remember, these are slaves that have been liberated. They're not trained for battle. Uh, They don't have siege equipment or heavy warfare. So how are they going to take the city that's impregnable? Joshua is contemplating the battle. And as he contemplates the battle, I mean, before he contemplates the battle, he sends two spies into the city to, to witness what's going on in the city, to, to reconnoiter and you know find mm-hmm. out what is the attitude of the people. Just like uh, Moses sent the 12 spies into the land, he sends two spies into uh, Jericho. They escape and after three days by making a covenant of peace with Rahab, mm-hmm. who is a harlot woman, but is a woman of faith. It's ironic. Mm-hmm. So she has authentic Marked faith. Marked by her scarlet. Marked by her scarlet, and she's cursed by Noah, who cursed the Canaanites, and condemned to death by Moses. But she makes a covenant which overrules the law and the, mm. and the curse, 
She makes a covenant of peace with the two spies, delivers mm-hmm. them from death, and therefore mm-hmm. she and her household are delivered. Yeah. She sends them into the mountains, and then after three days, they return to Joshua. Three days becomes very important in that whole sequence of the crossing of the Jordan. He sent the spies in, and they've returned, and he's contemplating the battle, and while he's contemplating it, a man comes up to him in military gear. So he goes up and he asks him, are you for us or for our enemies? And the answer is no. Now the question is, why is the answer no? I mean, this is the commander of the hosts of the Lord. Mm-hmm. He identifies himself. So why isn't he all for Israel? Mm-hmm. That's the gospel. Why is the only answer that's appropriate? No, it's because in Jericho, there is a family of faith that Joshua thinks are the enemy. Mm-hmm. And in Israel, there is a family of no faith. Mm-hmm. And the family of no faith is Achan who is the prince royal of the tribe of Judah. He was descended mm-hmm. from Zerah, who was marked with a scarlet cord. See how that comes back mm-hmm. into the narrative again? But it was his afterborn son, Perez, from whom Christ would come. Mm-hmm. Achan would be the presumptive royal house if they became a monarchy. He's the one who in the battle covets the wedge of gold and the silver and the Babylonian garment. He winds up being cursed, he's cut off. It's an illustration of Paul He's cut off from the royal line, and the one who will be grafted in is Rahab. Mm. And she's grafted into the same royal line because she marries into the tribe of Judah Mm -hmm. and becomes one of the ancestral mothers of David and then of Christ. So, and that's gospel, the natural branch cut off, the unnatural grafted in. So he's contemplating the battle, and you know, he recognizes that this is the the host, uh, the commander of the hosts of the Lord. He comes with a sword drawn, he falls at his feet, and takes his sandals off because mm-hmm. it's the same, the Lord of Sinai is mm-hmm. now here giving him the battle plan mm-hmm. of how the battle is to take place. And now that Israel has been purified and the battle will be to take the city of Jericho mm-hmm. to uh, humble its pride. So he will be given the battle plan. The battle plan for Joshua is going to be three patterns of seven. And again, we can think about this in terms of revelation or any of these ideas replicating themselves. So they will march around the city once a day for seven days. Then on the seventh day, they will march around seven times on the seventh day. And then on the seventh, the conclusion of the seventh circuit, they will have trumpets sound the seven trumpets, which are the marks of holy war. Then the company will shout and all of the walls will fall. And they will go in and destroy everyone except the harlot woman and her family who are behind the door of safety they will be brought out of the city before the city can be destroyed mm-hmm. and burned on its tail. Well, that narrative becomes very important. Mm-hmm. And how is that? how does that help us with Revelation? Well, in chapter 1, like he had with Joshua, his commander of the host of the Lord, sure. and that narrative is Christ, he appears to John on Patmos. And John, like Joshua, falls on his face before the glorified commander of the hosts who's coming with a sword coming out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. And so we have we have that scene again. He's going to be given a battle plan for how Jesus will conduct his warfare against the city, which is not named Jericho, but it is named Babylon. But what is the target city behind Babylon? We'll have to answer that too. So then the next two chapters are the letters to the churches. Mm-hmm. And in those letters, what Jesus is doing is he's calling his people to repentance because he's preparing them for the holy war that is coming against Babylon. And they must be prepared. And so we, we that will correspond to mm-hmm. Joshua re-implementing circumcision and Passover in order to make the, his army confident. After that, we do read about 
two spies, two witnesses that go into the city, and they have an encounter. They're sought like the two spies to be put to death. They actually die, but are resurrected. And so the two witnesses here, they correspond to the two spies that mm-hmm. Joshua sent in. And then we've got a battle plan. The Ark of the Covenant is there. There are three series of seven. There's a scroll that has seven seals that are opened. The seventh seal becomes seven trumpets that are sounded. When the seventh trumpet in Revelation sounds, all of heaven shouts. Uh, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And after that, then in 16, I believe it is, Revelation, we read Great Babylon Falls. So we can really see that as the the sequence of coming after the sounding of the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet becomes seven vials of judgment that are poured out upon the wicked city of Babylon. When that seventh trumpet and the walls fall, they're told to come out of her, my people, Mm -hmm. just as if right Before the city's burned. That's right, absolutely. Yeah. Joshua says, bring out the, bring out the yep. woman with her right. family. And in Revelation 18.4, a word comes from heaven after Babylon has fallen. Come out of her, my people. Right. So the people that will be in the heavenly city are the ones who are rescued from right. the city of the whore, right. which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And New Jerusalem is made of 12 precious stones, you know, by the water of crystal rivers, mm-hmm. which corresponds to the Jordan. Yep. So instead of 12 riverbed stones, Jesus makes 12 precious stones as the foundation of his heavenly city, uh, which shows that his work yeah. is greater, obviously. So there are many correspondences that go from that, that goes from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, to the very end yeah. of the book. And the people that come out of the Babylon um, end up being the bride of Christ and Rahab that comes out of the city ends up marrying into the righteous line. And so that shows the bride. scope of God's redemption. Here is a whorish woman under the curse, mm. under the condemnation of the law of the curse of Noah, who is rescued by faith alone and delivered mm. to the people of God and is given a destiny as a royal sure. bride. So she becomes a picture of the whole church of all the ages. Right. There is a sub-story that is very parallel to this, and that's the book of Hosea, which is connected because Hosea, remember, was the original name of Joshua. And it's, it's from the same root, salvation, basically. Hosea is the imperative save, and Yehoshua is that the Lord is the one who saves. So both books have to do, both Joshua, both names, Hosea and Joshua, have to do with the rescue of a whore. Hosea, God's holy prophet, is commanded to marry her, and then to win her back by his faithfulness and love. What happens is she leaves her husband and has children of adultery, and they are not my people. Mm-hmm. That's, that's recognizing their bastardy of mm-hmm. their beginning. He will call them his people. He will adopt them to being his own. When the voice comes from heaven, after great Babylon falls, come out of her, my people, that comes directly from Hosea. Mm-hmm. I will call them my people who are not my That's people. Right. So here they're coming out of the Horus city to become subjects of the, of the new Jerusalem. You know, that substratum of the Christ figure, whether it's Joshua, who gives us our inheritance in the new world, or it's Hosea, which shows God's unfailing love. We see that it's redemption toward the least likely that will become paradigm becomes a pattern of the salvation of God. And he takes us from our harlotries and makes us holy, then delivers us to a destiny of being espoused to the Son of God himself. And and that goes back to what we talked about in the previous session. The genre here is an uptick. It's Mm -hmm. it's taking people 
you know, who were not and, and becoming, you know, people coming out of the whorish city and becoming the people of God. There's that comedic trajectory and it goes back to the original thing that we started with, that tension of that war between mm-hmm. the two seeds. You know, God mm-hmm. has his seed and there's the seed of the serpent and God is going to redeem his seed. He's going to do what he's going to do. Now we're starting to shape up a little bit about, okay, hold on, now I can maybe put this book in to some perspective. If I'm reading this rightly and I'm saying this is a book of hope, this is a book of very close retelling of Joshua's battle of Jericho, it it allows me, if I'm reading it, to hear those trumpets maybe a little bit differently. That's exactly right. And that means we are to hear the trumpets sounding in Revelation through the ears of righteous Rahab. That's right. And how did she hear it differently? I think that the the commonality between the two is that Rahab is really behind enemy lines. Her allegiance has already shifted right. to Joshua and the, the people right. of God. She right. knew from the time of the Exodus, 40 years ago, she had probably heard about it, but anyway, she knew that God was with this people. And then they've had mm-hmm. recent victories against mm-hmm. Sihon and Og in the Transjordan. She knows, she says, Our, we know that God has given you the city. Mm-hmm. So that's what the spies were sent in to find out. The morale of the people is zero. They know that they're under judgment here. When the people of God, this ragtag group that can't do anything to the walls of Jericho, when they're running, walking around the city or whatever, you can kind of almost laugh at them. You think you mock them and say, this is ridiculous. But we're told that they were in fear. They knew God was behind them. Mm -hmm. When they hear these trumpets sound, knowing that that means the battle is present, they're hearing these things with terror and fright. Rahab hears them differently. She knows that her Redeemer is coming. The objective basis of fear is there, but subjectively through her faith, she heard them differently. The trumpets in in Revelation are terrifying. They announce judgments Mm -hmm. and plagues that are, and we're behind enemy lines. We're here in this world. Mm -hmm. And so when these, when war, famine, pestilence, and death, when that breaks out in the world as a result of these trumpets, you know, the rest of the world is trembling and frightened and everything. Yeah. And we need to be a people of faith. That's right. Hearing them like Rahab, that means our Redeemer is coming. So that we're joyful. We, we know where mm-hmm. this is going. It's not going in a tragic direction. Right. It's going in a comedic direction. Right. We express our faith by our confidence. Mm-hmm. And, that, and then people will come to us and say, Why, how can you be hopeful? When they're going through difficulty in First Peter 3.15, he says that they will ask you about the hope that you have within you. He's writing uh, to people that are going through difficulty, and the world is looking at them going through difficulty and seeing that they're going through difficulty different than the world. Yeah. You know, it's like when the uh, early Christians would, you know, go to the Colosseum or wherever they would martyr them, and, and many of them would rush towards the lions. And the people they would were sing the hymns stands. because they were shortly sure. to see Jesus. That's right. And the people in the stands were watching this, mm-hmm. and many of them were coming to faith because they're going, "This can't be normal." They got to know something. And oftentimes, the Romans would shut down some of the persecution because because people because were, people coming, were to faith. coming to faith. You know, and, yes, and, and, yeah. and, but that's the difference. And I think there's I think there's something there to be said. And I don't I don't want to overstate it and, and make anybody feel bad. We all have our own issues with with just living through life, and none of us are perfect. But I do think there is something really telling about reading the book of Revelation in fear means mm-hmm. that you're sort of, you're, you constitute the Jericho people that are not the people of mm-hmm. faith. And when you read it through the lens of hope, you're, you're seeing it in the, in the, through the lens of, 
Rahab, and I'm not insinuating that somebody who's read it in fear, who's a Christian, isn't isn't really Christian. But the point is, is that I think that that can't be missed. That's this right. should not be read as the people of God as a book that is written to make us scared. Any more than any other book of the yeah, Bible. It's yeah. all intended to encourage you. The, exactly right. the point is, I think what casts out your fear is love, always. Mm-hmm. And when you realize that you're loved of the Lord, regardless, right. in spite of your past and your That's sin right. and all of that. I, I think you can make a case that Rahab has believed in God, but mm-hmm. she's still a prostitute in the city. Mm-hmm. That is such a, it cuts against our whole ideas of righteousness and godliness. And I don't think either one of us would say we shouldn't be righteous or godly, but it just shows that salvation is not something we earn. I think that it's the the poets, the authors who can intuit this when the theologians miss it altogether. <laughs> Dostoevsky in The Crime and Punishment, his, his character Sonia is a Christ figure. She has to feed her family. She can't, she has nothing to offer except her body. She hates that. The circumstance of desperation she's in, that's what she's doing. Mm -hmm. Maybe her faith was weak, but he doesn't depict her that way. He depicts her as a Christ figure, suffering shame in order that others might live. Mm -hmm. And there's that tremendous scene when she's speaking with Rishkolnikov, you know, the murderer, the double murderer. She's she's trying to witness Mm -hmm. of her faith in that kind of a circumstance to a murderer. And both of them are brought together. So you have a murderer and a whore that are giving attention to the Word of God. Dostoevsky can see these things. It's a different way of looking. It's a different way of imagining. Cervantes, who wrote Don Quixote, Don Quixote has lost his mind, or he has a different kind of imagination. Remember, he fights the windmills and thinks he's going against dragons. You get the dragon and the woman, and he sees a barmaid, a whore, but he sees her and he imagines her to be this lady of tremendous virtue because he can see in her something that no one else can see. Mm-hmm. I think in some ways God sees us. He can yeah. see what we can be Absolutely. in spite of our whorish exactly character. Right. And so that creates, it's, it's a comedic vision sure. that created the character of the Spanish people. The same with, with uh, Dante, the poet that imagined um, Beatrice. You know, the whole, the whole idea, of the, the thing that draws you in... Uh, in, in Dante's uh, comedy, he, you know, the, his, his cosmic vision, mm-hmm. which is comedia, he called it, because at the end, God is smiling over all of his creation. So he had that same vision, and he saw that he saw that's what draws you. Now, Goethe had the same vision, too. Uh, he ends his, uh, his great um, Faust with das ewig weiblich, sieht uns an, the eternal feminine draws us, ennobles us, and brings us up, and lifts us up. But he writes this tragedy. Faust is a tragedy. You know, he sells his soul to the devil, and you know he can have anything he wants for twenty years, and then the devil comes to claim his due, and he's screaming at the end, being dragged off to hell. That becomes the epic of the Germanic people, which is which is strange to me. But anyway, same thing with Milton, who writes this very tragic Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes the epic of the English-speaking people. So you've got. Mediterranean, you've got the Italians and the Spaniards, mm. who were Catholic in their basic mm-hmm. orientation, who have comedies as the basis of their culture. And you've got these northern Europeans, you know, mm. and the, looking for the day of Ragnarok and all of this stuff. These things really determine cultures mm-hmm. more than we know. But it's the poets that have the vision of the whore that is transformed into the virgin. Mm. 
that becomes worthy sure. of the Son of God himself. Yeah. And I think ultimately that imagination, which like I say, I don't find it among the theologians. I do find it among the poets. That imagination, I think, is, is really an insight into the kind of God that we, sure. we have who can see our heart. He can see in a woman, like the woman in Luke um, 7 that comes. She's a prostitute. That's said. Simon recognizes her. She comes to the dinner, washes the feet of the Savior with her tears and lowers her hair, and he sends her away forgiven. Mm -hmm. That's God. It's yeah. Christ. Sure. Because they know what forgiveness is all about. And because they're forgiven much, yeah. they love much. Sure. Zacchaeus is a great example. Mm -hmm. Matthew, the tax collector, Levi. I mean, people that had done people wrong. Um, David, I mean, a king who goes and takes somebody else's wife. As you know, I do some other social media things, and um, I've talked about grace. And so many people are like, you know, you can't be saved by grace. you got to have works in there, too. N neither one of us are saying that we shouldn't go on after meeting Christ to do good works. Like the book of Titus yeah. is all about good works, but that's not what saves you and me. No, yeah. and, 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 th and this is the essence of it, is that God reaches down. You know, I, I love how Paul says, you know, you know, if you had a really good dude, you might find somebody that would maybe give their life for them. Mm -hmm. You know, but if you had somebody who was just sort of like, I mean, so-so, probably not. But while we were sinners, Christ died for us, mm -hmm. you know, Romans 5, 8. I think there's a sense there that, that once again, it goes back to our last session, this tragedy and comedy. If you don't understand how bad it is, you don't understand how awesome the solution that is being presented through Christ's death and resurrection is. And, and if you get those two things messed up or you don't understand each one, I, I think you have a deficiency in understanding the gospel. And a you deficiency know? in love. Yes. Because you haven't taken a proper... Correct. Simon is judging Jesus too. Remember? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And but Simon lives in a world where he thinks he's outwardly righteous. Same yeah. world that Paul lived in. That's right. Until his conversion. That's right. He doesn't see his own corruptions. No. And that means he, he... Jesus said... He loves little. He loves, so he's in the faith, really. I think that's mm -hmm. clear. But he loves little because mm -hmm. he hasn't realized how deep the love that's of right. God can go. That's right. At this point, we've we've looked at Revelation 12. We've done the center of the book. We've now looked at uh, genre, genre um, comedy and tragedy. And now we've sort of laid this foundation. That we have a template of, for the yeah, whole book. Yeah. It's retelling the ministry of Jesus through the life of Joshua, the prophet. Now we need to see how the two... The, how it relates to the Gospel of John. That's right. And that's what blows everyone's mind. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you follow us and give us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts.